0: Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast, it is all about you and helping you reach the big goals you have in your life. And what next steps will you take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 42. This week, I love this, we are talking to cognitive neuroscientist Chantel Pratt. Now Chantel is a professor at the University of Washington with appointments in the departments of psychology, neuroscience, and Linguistics, and at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, the Center of Neurotechnology, and the Institute for Neuroengineering. Wow. Now, Chantel's work is the result of decades of research on the biological basis of individual differences in cognition. In short, what makes you, you? Now, she's the author of a brand new book called The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different, and How to Understand Yours. So if you're curious to know more about your own brain, or about the brain of someone that you care about who might work differently from you, you're going to love this episode. We go deep into a lot of different areas. So now get ready for episode 42. I hope you're ready for this one. Here, everyone, is Chantel Pratt. Hey, Chantel. Welcome to the I Dare You podcast. It is really great having you here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Were you traveling all around the world? I, I'm living through you here. You love to travel. Where were you?
1: Um, I was in Croatia at a conference, uh, it's software communication. So, our lab did a, a session that was about learning from uh, learning technologies and what we can, what kind of indicators we can use from those software to figure out how well people are learning and how well they'll perform in the real world. It was awesome. I mean, it was literally on <laughs> the ocean and it was warm and the oh. people were friendly.
0: So Chantel, you you're a brand new author, debut book, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But in the area of cognitive neuroscientist, wow, that's pretty specific. I mean, how how did this occur? How did you choose this of all the things you could do? How did you first land on this as your vocation?
1: That's a great question. Of course, I ask myself that from time to time, like, what am I doing here? Um, And also, it's kind of a fun intro. If somebody walks up to you in a bar on an airplane and asks what you do, you get very different responses if you say I'm a cognitive neuroscientist than if you say I'm a psychologist.
0: I bet, I bet. (laughs)
1: So I started out pre-med and I was really, you know, I think looking back, I was following this track because I was ambitious and I had this messaging in the world about what do, you know, precocious, curious people do? Oh, they become medical doctors. And I hadn't thought at all about the fact that I hate blood, that I don't do well under you know, under pressure and uh, that people really shouldn't trust me with their lives. But along this journey, I needed to take one social science class. I had one social science requirement left to get all my pre-med um, coursework out of the way. you know I've taken physics and organic chemistry and all these things and I needed a social science class. think I'm thankful that people want doctors to have this balanced education because it was in the taking of that social science class. I took a psychology class. And I learned about Phineas Gage, this railway worker who had a spike blasted through his frontal lobe and remarkably walked away from, you know, the scene, but he was completely a changed man and his physicians have written about this extensively. But at the time I just learned that this, you know, dependable go-to guy for getting stuff done had turned quite sort of uninhibited. And, you know, they said given to his animal instincts and, you know, mm. couldn't keep a plan. And it just struck me that the brain is the or, an organ in your body. And this organs job is to create every thought and feeling that makes you the individual mm. that you are that you identify with as your own. And that if you change the brain, you change the person. And so what interests me and makes me feel safe at the same time is understanding cognition, understanding thought, understanding all of the inferences that the human brain makes. And it turns out in my lifetime, I've seen the cognitive piece, the thinking piece become more and more central to the therapies as well, right? You know, we have cognitive behavioral therapy and we have people mm-hmm. sort of examining the inferences that go into your beliefs about yourself as ways of helping with mental health as well. But I've always been sort of, you know, doing research on this cognitive side, this thought side and figuring out how different brains understand the world and why.
0: So let's go there then with all your research. I mean, you, you've done decades of research on this. And what is it that, that you think most people miss about either the brain? Maybe a better question. What don't they really appreciate about the brain or how, how it is hardwired? And see, I'm already making assumptions about yeah. it. But what, what is there about the brain you think most people miss or don't appreciate? What do you think?
1: Oh, what a man. That's a complicated question. There are a lot of different ways that brains work that fall within this perfectly normal range. And within that space, I think it's, I think we don't appreciate that there are ways that brains can be different, but not better or worse. You know, one kind of brain design might do really well in a particular environment and then have a cost in a different environment, but that there's no way to objectively sort of rank these brains that in that normal space, figuring out how your brain works is more like finding your lane than winning a race with your brain. And I think we we have some really narrow set of environments that we use to decide, oh, my brain works well, or my brain doesn't work well. And that within that space, there are a lot of different ways of being that are equally functional in the grand scheme of things.
0: You know, I've, I've read part of your book and also reading about you. And it seems like you really revel in the fact that these differences between the brains, that's where this, that's how we can come together. It's a little bit of a dichotomy there. Can you explain that a little bit for me?
1: Yes. Um, Yes. So I think that on the one hand, we're all humans. And I think that the most quintessential thing about our human brain is that it adapts
0: Mm.
1: our brains, you know, rather than being born with a series of hardwired instincts our number one instinct is to learn from the environment that we've been exposed to. And like I, you know, you and I were talking offline about prediction and how the brain likes to know what's coming next. Like our brains are shaped by our environments from, you know, from the uterus and the sounds that a fetus hears brains already start tuning to this is what I'm going to have to do. Um, And so, And so in that sort of sameness, that sort of human ability to adapt to our environment, we all have different environments and we all have different experiences. And these experiences set us up to understand and decide and behave and feel differently, even when we come to the same place. And, you know, So when it comes to connection and the kind of dichotomy of differences matter, I think that we need to understand that when we're trying to connect with someone else, walking a mile in their shoes really is just a way of putting your brain in the place that that person is occupying, right? So like you might, Hmm. you might be thinking about another person and going like, wow, this person makes really terrible decisions. It's not (laughs) It's not really,
0: thought po- that, like, actually. yeah,
1: we think that, but what <laughs> happens when we think that is we're using our values and our life experiences, we're imagining ourselves in that situation and what we would think is better rather than trying to instead reverse engineer, like what could make that person, what about that person's biology and their life experiences mm. makes it make perfect sense that they make these decisions, right? So like, how do we acquire the tools? To understand people who have different, whose brains have adapted to different experiences or whose brains might be like you were talking about hardwired. That's a part of it. You know, some brains are built differently, but all of our brains are also shaped by our lifetime of experiences.
0: So for for those that are trying to, for all of us who are not uh, cognitive neuroscientists, uh, I'm one of them. (laughs) Uh, so how, how, should we think about our brain? In other words, we, when we're kids and you know infants and, um, then, then growing up or we know our brains are changing, right? Teenage mm-hmm. brain is not different than is a lot different than, but does the brain stop evolving or is it, in other words, I'm 55, is mm-hmm. it over? Is it over for me? Am I, no. a, okay. T- t- tell, tell me why and, and what, what's really happening to the brain? How is it adapting and helping or hurting?
1: My colleague, Patricia Cool's research has shown that every infant can understand, every newborn can understand or can discriminate all of the speech sounds that humans make in all of the languages in the world. But by about six months of age, their brains start to tune in and develop bigger representations of the sounds in the language or languages that they hear. Wow! They start to understand their the sounds in their own language better, but at the cost of the sounds that they don't hear so you know there's this kind of tuning i think it's really important for people to know that so long as you continue to have variable experience life experiences so long as you continue to expose your brain to new ideas push yourself out of your comfort zone it won't stop right it's like you kind of think of your brain like i'm a prediction machine yeah. And as long as I'm seeing new things, it's like, I need to keep learning. I need to keep taking statistics. If you did exactly the same thing, didn't push yourself out of your comfort zone, didn't leave your home, didn't meet new people, those those mechanisms for sort of building new networks and new associations will become more fixed. Your brain will be like, oh, I've, I've narrowed it down. Just like the sounds of, you know, imagine the the analog to like this, I've heard all of the sounds I need to use imagine the analog of that in ideas. Like I've already been exposed to all the things I need to operate in this environment.
0: Does Mm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. And now the follow-up though has to do with, for me, the getting out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So I know I need to, in fact, many of the people listening, they're listening because they want to live a better life and they're, Mm -hmm. they're just pushing things a little bit. Some are, Mm -hmm. some are holding back, Mm-hmm. but what is the brain doing to us? Is it mm-hmm. is it encouraging us to get out of the comfort zone or is evolution telling us, don't, I'm trying to protect you. I'll step back. I think you know what I'm asking.
1: I do actually. And it's and the first thing I want to say is what is the brain doing to us? It does different things in different people. And you can intuit this because some people are more adventurous by nature. Some people are more curious by nature. And even the way that we're curious is different. Some people are curious about experiences. Some people are curious about knowledge and there are these kind of personality like traits that show you that with, you know, across individuals, there are differences in how their brains weigh the costs and benefits of getting out of your comfort zone or exploring new things. What's what I think is, and, and then within people, of course, there are moments when you feel very curious and you're ready to do, take that leap and moments where you feel more cautious. Right. Right? So it's, it changes across people and within people and your question, the way you framed the question, what is our brain doing to us is beautiful because I, I don't think that people appreciate that, that feeling of curiosity or caution is arising because your brain has already made a decision. Your brain has already, you know, when it comes to a new situation, Right. Like, I don't have a rule for this. I don't have a series of expectations. I don't have a strong understanding of what I should do here. When your brain can't predict, doesn't have experiences with a new circumstance, it weighs the costs and benefits. Like we all feel like it's really exciting and wonderful to be curious, but remember the saying, the curiosity killed the cat.
0: I know that saying
1: (laughs) there are, there are evolutionary, you know, you can imagine you find yourself in a new neck of the woods and this could be really great. I could find shelter or new food, or I could find a bear or something that can eat me. Right. So your brain does this in, not only in physical safety, but in psychological safety as well. And so what's interesting is that um, curiosity arises because your brain has decided that there's information, there's an experience or there's information in this situation. And that exploring is more likely to lead you to these information rewards than it is to some kind of psychological threat or danger.
0: Well, I know. Okay. So is there, is there any way we can push through that to, Mm. to trick our brain, to trick our brain? Is there any way to push through?
1: Yeah. I think that always the thing that we're not so learning about it is one thing, right? Because much of what drives our behavior are these implicit subconscious feelings. And, and, you know, we tend to have an overinflated idea of us being in control this sort of explicit conscious mind as driving us you know we have these older evolutionary brain systems that say this feels good this feels bad and and those do a lot more driving than you think but learning about these things so that you can then kind of talk to yourself and say I'm feeling insecure like what or I'm feeling unsure what what's the worst thing that can happen what's the best thing that can happen like you know because different brains are more sensitive to say like uh, social embarrassment or, you know, or feeling incompetent. That's something that increasingly happens with age, at least in my case. Right. So you can kind of ask yourself, like, what am I afraid of? And you can also maybe tell yourself that as I, I mean, one thing that's for that's certain is if you don't push yourself out of your comfort zone, your, the places where you feel okay, are not going to grow. If anything, they're going to shrink. Right. So if you okay. press yourself out of your comfort zone and things go, wow, well, you learn this kind of sense of self-efficacy and your sense of adventure your comfort zone will grow. If you don't, you're not going to have this new experience. You're not going to learn. And, and you better be really happy where you are. <laughs> Maybe you are, you know, and that's okay too. <laughs>
0: So, at what point then does does dopamine play a role, or other mm. things like that? Is that are we heading into that direction then, that the brain Abs- uh, craves that? And yes. uh, tell, tell us more about that.
1: Yes, um, the feeling of curiosity is actually accompanied by a dopamine reward. So your brain, the, your brain makes you feel curious as a way of driving you toward this adventure. I love. That. And in fact, if you. Look at a curious brain. So, um, neuroscientists have devised these really interesting experiments where you give somebody a trivia question, or you have them watch a magic trick, and then you ask them how interested are you in like knowing the answer to this question or knowing how this trick works. And if you look at the moments where people feel curious, it is the exact same part of the brain that processes rewards and uses dopamine that's active when you give a hungry person a picture of a piece of food and say would you like to eat this food. Is that
0: right? Really? So it's
1: anticip. I think it's beautiful <laughs> that the human brain treats knowledge as a re- as as much of a salient reward as food when it's hungry. Like our brain, yeah. a curious brain is hungry for knowledge and it uses dopamine as a way of kind of luring you. <laughs> out of that comfort zone, right? Because there is that threat. And so if your brain is not feeling curious, it's either because it's more salient to your brain, what could go wrong or because it doesn't, hasn't quite thought of what could be rewarding behind that sort of door number one or door number two.
0: Fascinating fascinating so you got out of your comfort zone at least in my oh my gosh you you, you tell me yeah so tell me how you you're the author of a brand new book is would that you consider that a big a big stretch for you
1: oh it's the hardest thing I've ever done and I it's the hardest thing I've ever done and I was a teenage mom and a single mom and getting my PhD so like think about getting a PhD with a four year old (laughs) (laughs) and then think about writing a book also during a pandemic right so you know trying to keep my lab and my loved ones safe psychologically and physically, of course, while stretching myself in this way. And I can tell you, going back to that individual differences, um we know that extroverts. So I, I would consider myself to be a, like a hyper hyper extrovert. We know that extroverts are very sensitive to unexpected rewards. So ex- when it comes to that, like what could go right? What could go wrong? Like when I get an unexpected reward, my brain probably gives me twice as much dopamine, you know, based on like research and scanners where you do kind of gambling tasks, my brain yeah. probably gives me twice as much or significantly more dopamine than an introvert. So when I'm doing the costs and benefits, what's really salient to me is what could go right <laughs> No, And I'm not, my brain is not really thinking about the costs, which of course I would do it all again. But, um, I, I feel pretty much every day, I mean, it's been almost two months since the book is out. Um, every single piece of the process was totally novel to me. Mm. Um, I, I set out to, I had a very clear goal. My goal was to write a book that was accessible, that you know non-academics could understand and use to learn about themselves but that was also more accurate than the average neuroscience book on the shelf. And when I went to actually do that, I realized those two goals are in a lot in competition with one <laughs> another. It was incredibly hard and um and I feel out of my comfort zone at every step because, you know, I want to show up, I want to be honest. I know not everyone will like my book for the same reason, you know, for the field I st- because of the field I study. Um And just being able to be creative, being able to communicate in a way that will touch different people and relate to different parts of their life, and doing that while under incredible time pressure and stress and having my full-time day job, all of those things were really, really definitely hard and definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone.
0: So... It sounds like it sounds like they gave you a lot of energy. I can hear it in your voice. I mean, I'm hearing that extrovert. Is that correct? I mean, everything novel and new and really energizes you.
1: Once I did it, <laughs> there were points where I was like, is this going to be the like most glorious fail of my life or am I going to get it done? And yeah. and I remember actually, um, you know, because I was a, a young mom, my daughter is now 27 and she came home from Washington, D.C., during the pandemic in the early stages. And I was like, you know, when it was, when I was a single mom in graduate school, I never considered that I wasn't going to get things done. Like I was just never considered not completing my PhD. But when I was writing the book, I was really in this, in the middle of it. I was like, we all need to talk about the fact that I might not finish this book. And then it might just be a big fail and a funny story we tell, tell at the, you know, campfire. about this opportunity that I had. And my daughter just looked at me straight in the face and said, no, you're going to write the book. Like she said, just start out by writing a bad book. Cause she, she understood that I had this pressure to do it perfectly.
0: There you go. She knows you.
1: And she was like, just write a bad book. Like you're going to finish. Like this is not acceptable. And I don't think I wrote a bad book, but I do think that once I turned in the book, I rewrote about 60% of it. (laughs) Like, yeah. So like after that, I got it done. And then I had this kind of like reorg. I wound up rewriting a lot. And my creativity was like, you know, everything kind of opened up when that time pressure released and and it wound up being, you know, not too bad.
0: (laughs) I I would say so. So (laughs) the name of the book, everybody, is the neuroscience of you, how every brain is different and how to understand yours. It is a great book. In fact, your book, I want to make sure I get this right. Right. It was nominated as the next big idea. It's it was nominated to be part of the Next Idea book club. And that, that's a huge, huge deal. You got some real deep thinkers who make this selection. So, congratulations to you. What does that feel like?
1: Surreal. I, I think it feels surreal. And I think, like, maybe the first 10 times somebody told me they loved my book, <laughs> I had this incredible imposter. You know, I'm like, oh, but you're my husband or like you're you know you love me or whatever but like you know when Adam Grant said it was like you know the smartest whatever you know funniest I like that compliment book he's ever read about the brain then I was like I don't know him at all you know I that's unbelievable and he reads you know in an insane amount and it's just um it's humbling um it's a long way from not finish a book or write a bad book to writing a book that people, some people appreciate. And that was my goal. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is to take the ego out of it. And remember that my goal was to have a message. Like I can't imagine how anyone could understand themselves without understanding how their brain works. And, and I hope that our sort of increasing value for diversity and for having different perspectives and decision-making spaces can be bolstered if people understand how to actually connect with someone who works differently.
0: You know, uh, a few years ago, my wife, Michelle, she had a subarachnoid hemorrhage on her left side, which is a brain aneurysm. And she was admitted in, she's, she's doing well now, right? That's oh, the, so doing well now. Mm-hmm. However, at the, I mean, obviously it's, it's an absolute uh, it's a traumatic brain injury, horrible, mm-hmm. right? So she was in the neuro ICU for 30 days Uh Um, and she thread the needle, went through rehab and relearned how to walk and eat and all those things. But here was a big aha for me that in the, in the ICU, these neuro ICU. And I was talking to this team of neurologists and they were like the Navy seals, right? They would come in and they would just, and I would, they would talk to me about the brain. What struck me, Chantel, is that they didn't know a lot about the brain. I'm not criticizing them, right. but I was amazed at how they almost talked about it like it was outer space. It was mm-hmm. like, we don't know this and we don't know that. So to you as a neuroscientist, this whole, the brain is still something we, we know very little about. Yes.
1: So true. Very true. And also doctors are trained to treat the brain like a system. There's a book called a walk through the frontal lobe, I believe. Hmm. And it's written by a neurosurgeon and I wish I could remember her name, but hopefully your, your listeners will look it up. Um, but she actually did a rotation in the lab that I was in, in Carnegie Mellon. And it's so fascinating to read her book and to think about the brain from the perspective of a medical doctor or a surgeon, because they're thinking a lot about not bleeding to death. you know, at it, as, a, as a pump or an engine, right? Like-
0: That's exactly what they were doing, yeah.
1: Yeah. Like how do we adjust the pressure and how do we stop the bleeding and how do we stop the bleeding in a way that doesn't create other blood clots? And then of course they see like, can you walk, can you speak, but the sort of nuance about how the same kind of brain damage can create really different outcomes. You know, I'm sure there was a lot of uncertainty. Like we don't know what the prognosis is. We don't know what the recovery is because in fact, the same kind of damage can look really different in different people.
0: Right. And I I just wanted an answer, but they wouldn't give it to me.
1: And that's, and that's also because (laughs) they were trained in the one size fits all approach. Like Ah. every, every, you know, medical book, just like every, you know, psychology book will give you like a circle on the brain and say, this is where speech happens. This is where, uh, you know, comprehension happens. And those are based on group averages and very sort of narrow populations of undergraduates. And it doesn't look like that. They all, you know, you learn this and then you see it in real life. And it's like, man, sometimes this happens on the right hemisphere and people. And, you know, it just doesn't, life is so much messier than those group norms. And um, I had a radio interview with uh, Dr. Joe S- Sivern. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And he sat, he's a neurologist. Okay. And the first thing he said to me was like, "I read your book, and I realized that what I learned in medical school was wrong." And it was so (laughs) talk about humbling, you know. And I was like, "You're right. Like that's true, (laughs) you know." But I'm sure you he's experienced that too, right? Like it's interesting. You got to start somewhere with a template, but then you're treating individuals. And you don't have a map of how their brain works from beforehand. So you don't really know how it's going to, what, how it's going to impact them or how they're going to recover. And, and that's the messy truth of it all is that we are not all the same. We're not widgets, you know, right. our brain is a very complicated organ, and, and there's not a lot, we still need good models of how individual brains give rise to individual minds. If we want to treat an individual yeah, rehab, an individual educate or parent or partner an individual. That's, that's where we need to be.
0: Wow. That's great insights. Uh, You were just on tour, obviously promoting your book and a lot of interviews and things. And what, what have you, what are you hearing from, from people you're just talking to you're in a whole new space now, what kind of feedback are you getting on the book? And what, in what ways is this book helping people as you're getting feedback?
1: We started this interview. You asked me, what do people not appreciate? And perhaps what I should have said is that your reality is created by your brain, you know, they're, you know, going back to fun examples, like the dress, is it blue and black or white and gold? You I know? was going to
0: ask you about that. <laughs> Which one is it? Because it's it blue is. blue and
1: black.
0: No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: See? And that's an important thing is like, you know, our idea, we're very convinced of the reality that right. our brain builds for us. And because if we, you know, second guess, like, is this table solid? is this, you know, dress really this color? Like if we second-guessed all of these you know, all of these subjective things that our brain does for us, we would we would just have, you know, analysis paralysis. We wouldn't be able to uh-huh. operate in the world around us. And and so, you know, if people can learn to appreciate that reality is created. Your subjective reality is, is a creation. It's, it's so inferential at so many levels. And if something as straightforward as color, you know, of a dress is open for interpretation, then imagine the beliefs that scaffold off of,
0: of those things. Well, it is open to interpretation because I don't believe you. You're not alone. Uh, what would you hope people would get out of this book? Uh, uh, either a new thought or a new behavior. What would you hope they would get upon uh, purchasing and reading this great book?
1: Well, I should say that since I can't study the individual brains of everyone that's reading my book, what I put in there were a bunch of quizzes and behavioral assessments. You know, whether it's a word puzzle or a personality test or in, you know, information about your handedness. I put a bunch of quizzes, games, informational sort of assessments in there that help you figure out how your brain works in this different space. And I think that um, by learning to appreciate this different space and understanding where your brain, the space that you occupy in that, you know, s- space of or place of possibilities that people will understand a lot more about themselves. Like, oh, that makes so much sense that, you know, X. But also what I'm hearing, what gives me hope is when people tell me like, oh, I, you know, this some very normal aspect of your everyday life where you find, you feel incredibly frustrated because you're trying to connect with someone. And it seems, you know, just like you said, I don't believe you're the dress. You know, <laughs> sometimes people's behavior seems so, asinine you know and you're like how how can you think that like we're looking at this I'm pointing to blue like we agree the sky is blue the dress is white you know like right and it feels so asinine but if you can learn about this connecting the dots (laughs) process that your brain goes through and get to a place where two people can have a different perspective and it's not really about right and wrong
0: yeah
1: it's really about your brain
0: I can tell as soon as we're done uh, this, this recording, we're going to hang out for another hour and we're going to settle this, this dress <laughs> thing that's on the internet. <laughs> it's bugging me <laughs> in, in my research. Either I was, I read it in your book or somewhere else that you, you wrote the brain looks at success at, like this. It, it drives around the human body mm-hmm. looking for another brain <laughs> with mm-hmm. which it can reproduce. Now, mm-hmm. uh, was that, that is such a base level quote and a summation of what the brain is up to. Um, Can you expand on that? Am I, did I, did I butcher that quote or am I close?
1: No, I mean, at the end of the day, brains evolve to drive bodies, not just the human brain, right? Like (laughs) this is why behaving animals have brains because, you know, it's, it's trying to drive evolution, right? So Ah. success is, is something that Keeps you fed and, you know, happy, you know, happy is just really pleasure and pain are just forcing functions that keep you alive so that you find another brain to reproduce with and your genes are, are, you know, put forward onto the planet. So, but it's, you know, that's, that's at the very highest level, but there's, you know, the human brain is so complicated. So the number of decisions that we make to move that body around in this world, moving toward good things and away from bad things, Yeah. then the complexity of those decisions is just mind boggling. And the, and the space in which different brains can make different decisions. You know, I could write probably 60 books about it. This was just the sketch.
0: Yeah. Well, great. So you're not done yet. I can tell Um, Mm -hmm. I was doing a little also research and I came across this documental, this documentary called I am human. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was your involvement in? I am human. What a powerful piece this was.
1: Oh, I love, I love the movie so much. And the directors were fantastic. Um, you, You know, the, the movie explores neurotechnology and, and the idea that now we have as, you know, Experimental and sometimes very frequent, we have mechanisms for interfacing with brains to treat conditions. Wow. And from Parkinson's to people who um, can no longer, who have paralysis and can no longer move their body, you know, we're developing ways of interfacing with the brain that can overcome some of these, you know, critical problems. Um, But the documentary, I think, also did a really fantastic job talking about the ethics of this. Right. So how do you consent? You know, like I'm telling you, yes, you can change my brain. But the person, you know, if you change the brain, you change the person like in the future, my brain is going to be different. And how do I consent for this person in the future? What if after my my brain is changed, I'd wish I didn't do this. So um, I was there as a representative of some of the work that we did uh, about five years ago, where we were connecting two brains together, um, using neuroscience techniques that already existed two separately, one that records information from the brain and decodes it, and one that can stimulate another brain, we did this brain, human brain-to-brain interfacing in which the first ever to receive uh, this technology was my husband, Andrea, and the first <laughs> ever to send was my colleague Rajesh Rao in computer science. So You're kidding me. We hooked their brains together, and essentially they played a video game where Rajesh could see the video game, and he could tell whether we needed to fire, whether it was a missile coming over, or we, whether we needed to not fire because it was a plane coming over, We could detect from his brain, when he wanted to fire, he thought about moving his hand. We could detect that signal from his brain using a brain computer interface. No way. Then we sent that information across the internet to Andrea, to the machine that was over Andrea's hand motion part of his brain. And we could stimulate that part of the brain. And essentially by thinking about moving his hand, Rajesh could cause Andrea's hand
0: to move. You are kidding me. That is unbelievable.
1: It is unbelievable and very sci-fi. So then you have to talk about what are the possibilities that this opens up? It opens up the possibility to communicate with another mind in a way that doesn't require language, which is really cool. But then what are the ethics, right? What, What happens again when you... Can directly influence the mind of another person so i am human does a fantastic job dealing with this space and we need to be you know i'm thankful that the university of washington and many other leading places in neuroscience and neurotechnology have neuroethics programs and researchers on board because we need to be talking about this right we're already changing the brains of people as part of treatment plans and so we need to be talking about consent and security and, you know, what are the, what are the pros and cons of this, these new technologies and the ability to interface with the brain and the movie does a fan, I think it does a fantastic mm-hmm. job talking about humanity and technology and brains and how these things all interface. Yeah.
0: So all the things you mentioned about defining reality, the blue dress, we've been through the pandemic and we are more divided than ever. I mean, good grief. And mm-hmm. I promise you, I, I'm not going to go any further than this as far as no. political, but is is am I is it safe to say that part of the reason why we're so divided is that it feels like we all have this version of reality, whether that be um, politically or, or science or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is this just a manifestation of exponential times 10 A blue dress example?
1: Yes. And I think that um, what I believe is that, you know, the blue dress shows that two brains faced with the same stimulus can come up with different ideas of it based on their previous experiences with light and shadow and all these interesting things. But during the pandemic, what happened? We all started to occupy different spaces. Like we share space less and less. And where are our inputs coming from? Our inputs are coming from, you're talking about your iPhone and your chip. Yeah. Your Or your phone, it doesn't have to be an iPhone. You know, your smartphone has a really good model of how your brain works. And it, what happens is, so it kind of already knows what you're about, your reality building tendencies
0: It does my gosh.
1: And it puts in front of you, the things that your brain that are going to draw your attention and keep you there more. And so I think that what happened in the pandemic is our opportunity to bump, you know, to share realities, to at least have two brains that can have a conversation in the same space has disappeared. And now we're like physically, separated. And all, and so now it's like, we're, so, you know, the dress shows two brains in the same reality, understanding different things based on their previous experiences. Now you take those brains and you give them less and less shared reality and more and more constructed reality that's been targeted towards their brain. And our ideas, you know, our, our sort of ideas diverge more and more and more because our experience we have now it's like, we have different experiences. I mean, I think when I was growing up, we all watched the same news. Right. And we might have different opinions about it, but like we talked to our neighbors and like we all had the same inputs. In the pandemic and with social media and with, you know, smart devices, we have different inputs. And it's just, it's, it's kind of like, You know, I was talking about how the infant brain becomes specialized for these different sounds. And as you like tune into the sounds in your language, you can't hear the other sounds. Yes. Remember? And I was telling you about putting yourself in front of different ideas. It's like we have deeper and deeper experience with fewer and fewer ideas.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, that is the best description I've heard as to how we landed where we are. And uh, yeah, that is why you're the neuroscientist. so <laughs>
1: well, and that's precisely, I mean, <laughs> this is precisely my reason for writing the book, really, is that I you know, this this great unfriending and this sort of social division stresses me out. and I think that it's, you know, based on a false sense of being right. On everyone's part, you know, and it's like, people don't just don't really appreciate that their brain is over-adapting to these environments that are not out there. They're manufactured.
0: It's pure gold. So that is the one of the main reasons why you wrote the book.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, because I, you know, it occurred to me sitting at, at the dinner table and talking to my husband, who's also a cognitive neuroscientist, that my perspective about all the inf- how reality is inferential and how our beliefs are inferential, and about how our brains are tuning to our experiences, was missing from people's. You know, people just assume that someone who believes differently is like a terrible person and an idiot, and all, you know, like all of these things, not really that right. their brain has just been fed different information
0: and Thank has adapted that. to that. Yeah, thank you for that. That is that is the most sophisticated way, in a, a really elegant way, of describing what's happening. And to me, and my my brain is agreeing with that because that that does make sense. So thank you for that. You move the ball forward for a lot of us wondering how in the world did we get here. Last follow up, then how do we get out of it?
1: Mm-hmm. That you know that's something that gives me hope. I think everybody, even the people who are still very you know feel very. Feet, feet firmly planted in their own beliefs. I think everybody is exhausted with this. with this division, they yeah. are, and it's going to prevent us all from moving forward. And I do think that people are open and curious. You know, it takes us back to curiosity. How are we going to get out of there? Right. We have to remember this idea of getting out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And how your brain, in order for you to feel curious, curiosity is, is something that puts the brain in a state of uh, motivating exploration and learning. So in order to get people to feel curious about someone who thinks differently, we have to remove that sense of threat. And I think the sense of threat comes from a feeling that these beliefs are central to my identity. And if these, if I change my beliefs about whatever I'm disagreeing about, I'm going to somehow change myself. And I think that if, if people can learn to appreciate the inferences that their brains are making and relax their confidence a little bit in the (laughs) fact that they are right. Cause everyone wants to know how to change someone else's mind. Of course, everyone wants to know that. And I have had so many people, how do we change people's minds about this, this, and this? And I'm like, you know, start out by just relaxing your assumption that your mind is correct. Because whenever you're trying to change someone's mind, you're already starting with the assumption that you're right and they're wrong. That's right. And I think that if we can instead be curious, like, huh, how did those beliefs come to arise in that person? How did, where did my beliefs come from? And I think that if you can relax the idea that you're right or that your way is the only way, I think it makes space but I think that if we can start to feel curious about people's different beliefs, instead of thinking this person is a monster because they believe differently than me, then we can at least motivate conversation, which can, I hope, lead to connection.
0: Good. There's some hope. There's some hope is what I heard in that. Yes. Good. Chantel, what is the best way to connect with you, stay in touch with you on all the interesting projects that you are pursuing?
1: You know, I accept requests on all of my social media. So my Twitter handle is at Chantel Pratt PhD. Um, Also, I really encourage your listeners to come to my website, which is ChantelPratt.com, because on top of, you know, being able to click on different talks and so forth. I've given, we have a research tab, which will let you take some tests and learn how your brain works. And, and there are always two options. You can decide if you want us to be able to use your data for science, you can click the science Mm -hmm. link and do a consent form. If you just want to take a short test and get feedback and not have us record it, you can do that as well. We're still, we've got three tests up there, but we've got like many more in the pipeline now. I think it's also helped science become more representative. So it's a really low, um, I hope it's a easy access way for you to learn about your brain.
0: Give us a lot to think about. You're doing a lot of cool things. What advice would you have? This is the I dare you challenge from you to all of us listening. What advice would you have about, about how we can take steps to chase those big goals that we have in our life? What should we know, Chantel?
1: Hmm. There are two pieces of this. One might be very controversial, and I would say the easiest way to have a better life is to appreciate all the things you might be taking for granted that are already fantastic about your life.
0: Nice.
1: Um, and the second thing is that, you know, I my research studies how our brains understand the world around us, but also we tell ourselves stories. There's an internal narrative that your brain creates that tells you why you're doing what you're doing. And this is also a part of that reality building process that your brain engages in. So if you feel like something is hanging you up, you know, you have this goal and you want to be better one way in is to ask yourself, what is the story my brain is telling me about what's limiting my beliefs? What is the story my brain is telling me about why I can't achieve this goal? And do I actually have evidence that this thing is true? Like, What's another story I could tell myself about why I'm at where I'm at? One that's sort of empowering and tells me, hey, this might actually explain the data equally well and might my- position you to have more confidence about your ability to do something in the future, because we do tell ourselves stories about how we got where we're, where we got and about where we're going. And, and those stories are, you know, again, created based on our previous experiences and so forth and so on. So I think getting into that, understanding what story your brain might be telling you, whether it's serving you and whether it's fact-based or fear-based is a good life hack
0: it's a great, great life hack. And thank you for leaving that with us. And you know what I'm going to do? Uh, this has been so fascinating. I'm going to enroll at University of Washington and I'm going to take a couple of classes from you. I just have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you to know, be my professor. For oh,
1: out. that's so, oh, that's so, that's so flattering.
0: Thank you for being on the podcast. My goodness. You know, we could talk for hours on this, but you've already your debut author doing some really cool things with your research. Love that. And thank you again for being part of the podcast. It's really good having you here.
1: Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I'm, I'm very, very, very honored to be here.
0: All right. That is Chantelle Pratt. What a delight she is, uh, a cognitive neuroscientist. I had no idea that cognitive neuroscientists were so much fun to talk to. Where do I begin to recap that, right? Well, I'm going to try. Here goes first. Get out of your comfort zone. We say it all the time. All growth happens outside your comfort zone. And now there's some science behind it, neuroscience, about why the brain craves it and how that fits into our behaviors and our actions. Secondly, we are so divided. And is it possible that maybe we're just too confident in our point of view? And maybe we just need to take a step back. (laughs) And maybe the color of the dress isn't blue like we think it is, or is it gray? I'm all confused. But regardless, I think we all can think of situations where we can just seek to understand a little bit more. Remember what that felt like? So now make sure you're following Chantel uh, at chantelpratt.com. You can uh, take part in her research, as she indicated. Also, uh, I would I would really check out her book, you guys. It's so good. The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. It's fantastic. Also, follow me on Instagram, at darrenjohnson1. Leave me a message. Follow the podcast on Instagram, at Pod. There you're going to see exclusive content and information. Um, yeah, you're not going to see anywhere else. I would love to see you there. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, especially if you love the episode. (laughs) And now that you've listened, share this episode with at least two people in your life who are important to you. They're going to love it. And it's going to help reframe their perspective as well on their own brain and the brains of others in their lives and how they view the world. All right, that was episode 42. Uh, We are working on episode 43. It's going to be another good one, I promise. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. We'll see you back here next week on the I Dare You podcast. I'll see you then.